Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is our life. He's everything to us. Lord, forgive us for those arrogant moments and those prideful times and those times in which we wander away and we forget about the power of the cross, the love of God, the cleansing of our Savior. But today we pray that we will remember you and that it will be sweet and wonderful and that we'll be humble, sweet, grateful people of the cross. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So glad to see you all here today and that you, you like so many others, did not start your picnicking early. <laughs> just delighted that you're here today. And I met some new people, some visitors here today, and I just want to thank you for coming by and visiting with us. We're just delighted that you're here. We hope that you'll sense the love of Jesus from us. We're not a perfect people, but we do love Jesus and we do love one another. And so we're so grateful that you are here with us. I've got a long, long section of scripture, and I know you want to get ready for your barbecue, so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, 25. Genesis chapter 25, I'm actually going to cover Genesis chapter 25 and chapter 27. I'm going to cover those two today. I want to share this with you. I announced when we were doing this series, setting up the series, that there would be 17 messages on the book of Genesis. Well, there's now going to be 16, and let me tell you, I, I, I struggled. Originally, this was going to be two messages, but as I looked at this, I, it, it hit me that there's one big idea that I don't want to break up, because although it's talking about the birthright, and I'll get to explain this in a second, the birthright and the blessing, it's all under the canopy of deception, and I think it's important to round it out today in one message, and so that's what I'm going to do. Um, I want to talk today about the cost of deception. I'm going to make a statement that will be the banner statement that I want us to remember. And then at the end of the message, I want to come back with five applications for those of us who are parents or who influence the next generation. Five very sobering things. This is not one of these joy-filled messages. I wish it could be. It is a very sobering message. And the banner statement that I want to make, the banner takeaway that I want to make is this. And that is that the tendencies in one, in one generation become the traits in the next. Let me say that again. The tendencies in one generation become the traits in the next. Now, with your finger there, I want you to go over to Exodus chapter 20. And I want to make a statement about generational curses. I just, just to let you know, some of the stuff that's been written about, quote, generational curses, I don't particularly agree with. Because it's written in such an ominous way as if somehow or another uh, you can't help but caving in to the sins of your parents or grandparents and that kind of thing. And I think you can get a little bit more spooky than the Bible intends for us to be when you get into this whole idea of generational curses. However, I don't want to go back to the other extreme either. Thus, my statement that the tendencies in one generation become the traits in the next. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, this is where the idea of the generational curses usually is lifted out of it. It comes in the context of the second commandment, the second commandment. Uh, pick it up in verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. By the way, I don't have time to go into this. The operative word is visiting. It's not that you're compelled to repeat it, but that it's visited on you. So the generational curse is not an inescapable sin that drops on you. Uh, it, it is around you, and if you're not careful, you might be sucked into the consequences of it. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I, I need to say something about this because in order for me to really connect the dots with what's happening here, and for you to see this whole generational thing from Abraham all the way through even down to Joseph, you have to understand this whole idea of a generational curse. So let me just say uh, a, a couple of observations, two of them, that come out of Exodus 20, verse 5. Number one, our children not only inherit the sin nature from us, but they also pick up some of our specific sin habits. And I think this is what he's saying. Okay, you want to cave into idolatry? Let me let you know that the tendency in this generation might be the trait in the next generation. It's visited on them. And they pick up some of our sin habits. The second thing I'd say about this whole idea of generational curses is that those who reject God, mind you, the text says, of those who hate me. So when you read generational curse, remember, read it in the context of the verse. It says, those who hate me. And it says, uh, those who reject God often experience both the consequences and the compounded impact of generational sin. So it has to do with the rejection of God and those sins that are passed on because without the power and redemptive presence of Christ himself, of course, you're going to be sucked into those things that are around you. But I don't want us leaving here saying as if all of a sudden, because my, my father, or my father wasn't, but just for the sake of illustration, because my father was an adulterer and all of that, that I'm going to be an adulterer. Or just because your, your, your mother did this and said these things about you, that you're going to do that. Not necessarily so, but there could be a tendency toward it. There is a pattern of deception from Abraham all the way through uh, to to uh, Jacob's sons that, that increases with intensity. It is a terrible thing. There's a pattern of deception even in this family. Now, what's remarkable about this passage is that, I, you know, these are the patriarchs. These are the people that God used to give framework to everything that we're doing today. And yet we see their imperfections, not only their imperfection, but their complicit intentional involvement in this sin. It begins back when Genesis 12, Abraham, the great patriarch, he lied about his wife. Not only that, he takes Hagar. So what do you see in the next generation? We saw this uh, last week, Isaac. Isaac takes it to another level without any thought. He lies about his wife. And then we're going to see it today in Jacob and Esau. It is more intensified, and we're going to come back to that. But for the sake of the rest of the story, by the time we see Jacob's sons, 
This, this, this whole pattern of lying and deception and manipulation is out of control. In fact, there's attempted murder. They try to kill. They're, they went to kill Joseph. These things have to be checked in our lives. But the story for us today really is around two big things. It's around the birthright and the blessing, but it's the same principle. It is the string of deception that is pulled through the life of Jacob. And what is even more awful than this is that there is the intentional participation the complicit involvement and instigation of Jacob's mother, Rebecca. And it's an awful story. The story unfolds itself and it increases with intensity in chapter 25 and then there's, yeah, chapter, chapter 25 and then there's a parenthesis over in chapter 26 when it talks about the whole mess with with Isaac, and then it picks back up over in chapter 27. So we're going to go part of chapter 25 and chapter 27. But each step along the way, it picks up with intensity. I don't think I need to define deceit or what it means to deceive, but for the sake of our discussion, it means to intentionally mislead by a false appearance or statements. And, um, but there's there's a hint of evil in all of this, even though it's not mentioned, it is the hint of evil. And there are certain points along Jacob's life that it could have been checked, but rather than it being checked, it was fueled. This is pretty remarkable here. So the very first point over in Genesis chapter 25, the first observation that I want to make is that it was sown in him. Sown in him. Uh, now, beginning at verse 19, uh, His folks pray. Isaac and Rebecca are praying for children, and God answers that prayer. And in response to Isaac's prayer in verse 21, um, Rebecca becomes pregnant. She conceived, and she conceives twins. Now, in the womb is where the beginning of all of this stuff takes place. But it was just passed down from one generation to the next. And there's a struggle that's going on. You pick it up here in verses 22 and 23. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The other shall serve the younger. Uh, two observations. Uh, this foreshadowed two things. Number one, it's foreshadowed the struggle between Jacob and Esau, which for the, the most of their lives they would have this. Uh, there's going to be an event that I will tell you about later on that cured Jacob of his deceit and manipulation, but it, it was a broken experience. But for, for all of their young lives and into adulthood, uh, this foreshadowed this struggle. Secondly, uh, this foreshadowed the struggle between two nations. As God told Rebekah, the Israelites would be the descendants of Jacob and the Edomites would be the descendants of Esau. By the way, historically, the Edomites continued to fight against Israel. And it's amazing to me that <laughs> Israel's most ardent enemies came from the same family. Ishmael, and now Esau. Now, but Jacob was born to cheat. 
I don't have any nicer way of saying that. It sounds awful to say that about a baby, doesn't it? it sounds terrible. But as you read the text, there's no other way of connecting the dots. He was born to cheat. Born to cheat. Look at what the text says here. Down in, um, down in verse 26. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Esau was born first, but Jacob is holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, what I want to point out here is this. Esau's born first, but Jacob was holding Esau's heel, okay? From the very beginning, Jacob was trying to take down Esau. And I think it's, 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 it's an image here, but this whole event typified the pattern of their lives. It's really amazing. And by the way, Jacob's name has a dual meaning. It means, number one, may God protect, and God does protect him. You see how God takes care of him later on. It's, it's just, it's going to be a mess, the, the, the wife's thing, and then his brother coming after him, and him thinking that his brother's going to kill him. God protects. But it's really interesting, his name in Hebrew has a, du- Hebrew has a double entendre. It means God may, pr- may God protect, but it also means one who trips up. Literally, his name means one who trips up. And I think it's amazing that God would choose to name him based upon his character. Jacob, you're a deceiver. Jacob, you're a manipulator. Jacob, you, you, you wouldn't really know the full truth if it slapped you in the face. You're always hedging your bets. I call people like this 75 percenters. You put 75% on top of the table and you keep 25 over here so you can leverage things. This is who you are. And it, it, it works out that way. I had this terrible thought, though, as I was reading this text. Suppose we had names that matched our character. Let's not be too hard on him. What would we be called? We have certain sins that we hold on to. Certain hidden areas in our lives. Suppose we had a name that matched that. And it must have been something every time he called his name Jacob. I guess he chose to lean toward, uh, you know, may God protect. But homeboy, your name also means uh, you're not too good to be around. You're tripping up people. So first we see it sown in him. But this deception, number two, was stirred up by his parents. Uh, Look at the text here, and I know this is a little bit of a stretch, but look at it closely. Verses 27 and 28 are telling. It's not just that he had the name and he came out of the womb holding on to his brother's foot. But these two verses, it says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. That's fine. But then this telling expression, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And by the way, uh, context is king. And as you read the story, the love, you can't help but, but, but think the love is defined. I don't think this is a wholesome love. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is sort of a pandering love. It, it's sort of a permissive love. 
I think, and I draw some observations here, I think that they were both admired. But the parents admired their kids. Nothing wrong with that. They admired them. It's great to admire your kids, but I got to tell you, I got to tell you, don't spell love, W-O-R-S-H-I-P. Don't spell love that way. But they deeply admired their children. You know, Isaac, he loved Esau. Esau was his man. He was a man of the field. He said, that's my boy. And he would hunt and bring him back. And, you know, he had a taste for wild game, as we'll see later on. This kind of messed him up. But Jacob loved to hang around the house. Nothing wrong with that. Loved to be with his mom. So they were admired. They were favored. I do believe. Although it doesn't say that as you read through the story. I think that's what this love means. That there's favoritism leaning toward one child over the other. And by the way, favoritism no doubt fueled the rivalry. Isaac favored Esau because he was the firstborn. And he knew about the birthright, and he knew about the blessing, and all of this stuff. And so he favored him because he was the firstborn. And he bought him the food that he loved. And Rebekah favored Jacob because, as I said, he hung around the house. And, you know, and guys, my heartstrings. And having raised two boys and been the only boy and the youngest in the family, I know how easy it is to hotwire mama, you know? And Karen, if she would be honest, her baby boys to this very day, they're grown men. They can get to her and never mind. Um, <laughs> I better leave that one alone. I might be in trouble here. Bob Roland here? Yeah, counseling on Tuesday. Uh, They were compared. I I really believe text doesn't say it. This is Crawford's implication. But I think in the context of loving more, in the context that this is my child, this is mama's child, this is daddy's boy, I think that they were compared. I think they were compared. And uh, there's an important application here. Be careful of showing favoritism. And by all means, do not compare your children to each other. And I know we mean well by this. I know we mean well by this. You have children that are just like you. You had a kid that you intuitively are drawn to. They, you know, you understand them and, and uh, you see yourself in them. And, 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 and it's easy, especially when they are the compliant child and they do whatever you ask them to do. And then you've got one that's outside the boundaries. And it's easy to say, why can't you be like your sister? Or why can't you be like your brother? How come that? takes you so long to do this and how come you know that's not a good thing that's not a good thing and I think there was some of this that was going on and I think the bitter struggle between Esau and Jacob also reminds us of the split between Ishmael and Isaac and I don't know if Jacob just I'm sorry if Isaac just forgot about what happened to his half-brother I don't know if he forgot about the mess that that caused. If he had been thinking, he would have been fighting like crazy to keep the family unit together. By the way, let me just say this. Embrace the differences in your kids, but preserve the unity of the family. Don't leverage the differences. Embrace those differences. It's okay. But more than anything else, as parents... The unity of the family is more important than the individual members. Preserve the unity of the family. 
rather than just highlighting those, those differences. Well, in both cases, whether it was the issue with Isaac and his brother, actually Abraham taking Hagar and making a bad choice, right now, right now, Isaac and Rebekah heading down a path that was going to heighten the division between their boys. In both cases, it was the foolish choices of the parents that caused the problem. Some of the sibling rivalry, uh, you know, I, we need to be really careful of, of accepting the group thing. I know it's, 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 everybody says this, you know, sibling rivalry will take place and it's a common thing. You know, that's just the way it is and this kind of thing. And before you, it's, it's kind of like expecting teenagers, every teenager to rebel. I don't think you ought to res- expect that. Neither do I think you ought to expect that sibling rivalry and give it a pass and let it get out of control. I don't think you ought to do that. I think it's a dangerous thing. And they fed into this, which fueled, in my mind, the rivalry between them. Well, it was sown in Jacob, and it was stirred up by the parents. But number three, it just spilled out of Jacob. He found the opportunity. Jacob's conniving ways was never checked. I don't know what the conversations were like when he was a little boy. I don't know if his mama said, no, no, you're, you're lying, son. Don't do that anymore. We got to get this out of you. I don't know if she checked herself. I don't know, if, but it was never checked. And so he, he was like a caged animal or, or some animal stalking his prey on the hunt, waiting to pounce at just the right time. He understood about the birthright, obviously. And they're no little boys as you pick it up in verse 29. They're grown men. And so my man is just waiting, waiting, waiting his turn. And I want to suggest to you, although it's not stated here, but because of the events in chapter 27, I believe his mother was behind this. I believe his mother was encouraging him. And we'll see this in chapter 27. And when we get there, you go, oh, yeah, I believe that too. And so he was out of control. He had, he had no accountability for the, for the mess in his own heart and life, he was orchestrating things and he was given the right opportunity. Beginning at verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the, that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, meaning red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And don't, don't skip over this next line. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Come back to that in a second. This was a perfect opportunity. Now I got to give a little bit of a, a little bit of a perspective here. The perspective that I want to give here is that though Jacob was not righteous, he technically wasn't deceptive in this instance altogether because he was all right on the table. He stated he wanted a birthright and he knew that his brother was hungry. Now, he was unscrupulous, unethical, an opportunist, and you can go down a number of other things. Deceptive at this point, not necessarily so. 
He knew what was valuable and he used the situation, situation to get it. So he is set up. Now let me say something about the birthright here. Birthright in Hebrew culture was a huge deal. It was very, very important. It was the right and privilege belonging to the firstborn son in the Hebrew family. In essence, it meant that the, the eldest son ranked highest after the father. And in the father's absence, he had the father's authority and responsibility. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal. He was next in line when it came to the Abrahamic covenant. That was what was at stake. It was a promise that was made to his grandfather that he was going to be the steward of that promise. Now, obviously, as you read the story, he's vulnerable. Okay, Esau was exhausted and famished. He was hungry. There's a tad bit of hyperbole here, though, in the text. And you just put, the, put it together. I don't think I'm reading too much into this. It wasn't that there was a lack of food or he couldn't get something else to eat. He was famished. He was hungry. He didn't want to spend any more time putting something together for himself. His brother was right there cooking. The food was almost done. Why should I bother and go get me something else to eat? That helps us understand. You read this and you say, well, God is cold-blooded. He was actually starving to death. No, he wasn't starving to death. He was very, very hungry and the food was being cooked. So he comes in there, and so then his brother cuts the deal with him. Gets him at his point of weakness. You want some of this? Man, it's good. Oh, it's great. You can have some. And it appears that Esau was a bit impetuous and impatient and Uh, lacked a sense of proportion and priority, and he did it. He makes a destiny-altering decision. It's a bad thing. I guess Esau reasoned within himself, what good is his birthright? uh, What what good would he do for him if he's dying of starvation? But I don't think he was dying of starvation. He was very, very hungry. So in an emotional moment, wanting to eat. He doesn't think about the value of what he's doing. He sells his birthright. I guess in the end, Jacob proved to be a better hunter than, his, than Esau, didn't he? Yeah, he, he got him. But I want you to look now at verse 34, as I pointed out. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Despised his birthright. That statement means he, he treated it as something casual. It was not a value to him. His appetite was more important. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 says it more strongly. It says, dot, 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 unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He, 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 here's the point. The point, the sin was, that es- the sin was Esau's indifference. This is the sin that he committed. It was his indifference to the privilege of carrying on God's plan for the world and for world redemption through Abraham and his children. It was not just a piece of, not not just a statement from his dad. His birthright was that of being the steward of the Abrahamic covenant. You, 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 follow, you follow me? Go back to Genesis 12. It's, it's God's plan of redemption for the world. And God said, yeah, I, I, you're the firstborn. You're, you're the one that is to be the primary steward of this plan. 
And you let a pot of stew divert you from what your mission was? Now, don't get too upset with him. I wonder what we sell our birthrights for. What are we willing to trade our future for? The weaknesses that we have. God says, Crawford, do you know the blessing that I have for you? Why would you settle for this sin that would disqualify you from receiving this blessing? Do you know what I have in store for your children? Why would you live a hidden life and cause my hand to be taken off your family? We sell our birthrights every day. Every single day. We sell our birthrights. So it's not, uh, let's not get too hard on my man here. Now we make a transition. It's telling in chapter 25 and in chapter 27, this is telling, that there is no mention of spiritual inclination or interest evidenced by either Esau or Jacob. Do you notice that? You read those chapters, there, there, there is no evidence or inclination of spiritual interest on their part. Now, I don't want to be too hard on their parents because we've all raised kids. And just because you raise kids in a Christian home doesn't necessarily mean they won't buy what you say. We've all been down that road. So I don't want to get too hard on them. But I, do th- 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 I can't help but think, given, given Rebecca's diabolical conniving ways that we're going to get into in a second... I I personally surmise that she wasn't walking that close to Yahweh, to Jehovah. And I think perhaps part of their mess was a lack of spiritual instruction in the home. Neither one of them had much interest. I wonder if there was enough explanation of the value of the covenant. I wonder how much Isaac spent telling his boys about the sacrifice and God providing there when he was about ready to be killed. I wonder if they heard the stories. There is no spiritual context in these boys' lives. Now grown men. None whatsoever. You do your children a hellacious disservice when we don't intentionally get them face to face with the scriptures and with God. So now we find things totally out of control. By the time we come to chapter 4, this, this, this deceit secures, and I put quotes around that, Esau's future. I mean Jacob's future. It secures it. And again, there are big quotes around that because we, we'll see later on that God takes this boy to the woodshed. But it secures it. Well, Rebecca and Jacob win in chapter 27. This is the surgical removal of Esau. It is the stolen blessing. The birthright is taken from him, and now the blessing is diabolically stolen from him. This is about as opportunistic, calculating, and manipulative as it gets. It's pretty remarkable. Here you have a mother and a son against a father, husband, and a brother. Now, the blessing, by the way, let me just say this, was the bestowal of God's 
goodness, and favor. And typically it belonged to the firstborn as the birthright did. It was a statement of how God would favor them, usually in the Old Testament, physically and materially, in terms of outward prosperity. And that's what the blessing was here. Now, the opportunity takes place in verses 1 through 4. Now, you know, Isaac is an old man right now, verse 1 tells us, and his eyes were dim, meaning that he could barely see. He could barely see. He couldn't figure out what was going on. He's going blind. And he is a very, very, very old man. And uh, he had a taste for some wild game. And he knew that Esau could deliver. Esau was his boy. And Esau always gave him the, the wild game and food that he enjoyed. And so he says to Esau in so many words, you go out there and you get me some wild game. I'm about ready to die. He's an old man. He said, you come back. And when you come back, I will give you the blessing. Problem. The opening line of verse 5 says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. It doesn't say when Isaac spoke to their son. Interesting. But when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. I don't want to play with that too much, but I think it just sets up the distance here in the relationship. And so she's hearing all of this. And now... There you have the opportunity, but number two, now you have the plan. I mean, girlfriend is smart. You got to give it to her. You, you might as well give it to her. I mean, she's evil and manipulative and conniving is all get out, but you, you might as well give it to her. She's smart. She's smart. So she goes back and verses 5 through 17, she orchestrates this plan. And let me just kind of make some statements about this for the sake of time. I'm not going to read it all, but she goes back. And number one, in a cunning way, she, she decides to doctor up the goat meat to taste like wild game. The goats were around the tent in their passage. She just goes out there and grab one. And so she knew how to cook. So she doctors it up. So there's a little bit of a wild flavor and it tastes like it. The old boy can't see anyway. He don't know any difference. So he, you know, that's what she does. A lot of love in the family. But I want you to notice as you read this later on that Jacob never questioned whether or not this was right. Isn't that odd? Jacob never questioned. He had lost his moral compass. Jacob never questioned whether or not this was right. Now, he had guilt. He he had no guilt. He only had fear. And by the way, don't confuse the two. Fear and guilt are not necessarily the same thing. Some of us will have a false repentance Not because we really feel guilty about our sin, but we're afraid we're going to get caught. He had fear, but he had really, he didn't have any any real guilt. He feared that his father might not be fooled. You see, what Jacob wanted was more important than what was right. And deception had become a comfortable friend and ally. Can I plead with you today? Lying is a part of our culture. And I think we lie more now than ever before. Deception is a part of how we do business. Deception has become an instrument and a strategy to get our way. And I want to plead with you, don't get comfortable with lying. Don't get comfortable with deceit. And the tragedy of this story is that he was totally at ease. Totally okay, totally comfortable 
with the lying and the deception that was going on. And so Rebecca's worship of her son drove her to dishonest, cunning ways. So what did she do? She made sure that Jacob looked and felt like his brother. He comes to his dad. And then thirdly, there's the execution here. He comes in in verses 18 through 29, and he does the deed. He walks into his dad, and, and his father says, uh, he says, so he says, my father, he said to him, here, am I, here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. And we're going to go on his text, and, and actually, uh, Jacob deceives his dad, and he lies twice. And then again, there's no guilt, he lies twice. Number one, he lies about his identity, says he's Esau. Secondly, and this, this, is, this is low, he says that God had given him success in hunting. He lies on God. So he, he, he lies to his dad and he lies to God. He says, yeah, God did this. And so his father is fooled and he feels him and he smells like Esau and he's fooled. And so Jacob receives the blessing. That's down in verses uh, uh, 27 through 29. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine? He's thinking it's, it's his boy. See the smell of my son is as a smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. I'm giving you prosperity and crops and uh, domination over the nations and bless those who bless you. What was he saying? He was really passing on the stewardship of the Abrahamic covenant. God gave this to your grandfather. He gave it to me and I'm blessing you with it. Well, the terrible revelation, verses 30 to 40. What happens? Verse 30 says, and as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then notice in verse 33 what Isaac did. Then Isaac trembled very violently. He realized what he had done. God's plan had been tampered with and there was no going back now. He couldn't reverse it. I've been had. My own family. My wife. My son. 
You've been had. Verse 34, Esau becomes bitter. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. What about me? This makes twice. Yeah, the first time was my fault. But don't I get something? And Isaac does bless Esau, but the blessing on Esau amounted to a veiled curse, to be honest with you. He would be subservient to his brothers, and he would be restless like his uncle Ishmael. It's kind of like Isaac wins the lottery, and Esau gets a gift card to the store that Isaac owns. And then the bitter departure. Found in verses 41 through 45. I'll just summarize that. Esau vows to kill Jacob after their dad dies. Okay. I've had enough of you. You never loved me. You never cared about me. You only have meant meant to do harm to me. I never retaliated. But I swear before God I will kill you. That's the intent of this text. I will kill you. Well, what happens? Rebecca sends Jacob to lay low with her brother Laban. I want to wrap this up by giving us five applicational lessons. And this has to do with those of us who are parents or influence the next generation coming out of this whole story here. Five of them. Number one, parents and those of us who influence the next generation, please address and get rid of your sin, whatever it might be. Your sin and my sin is not just about me. It's not just about my private walk with God. It's not just about my own individual struggle. It is not a private matter. No sin is a private matter. There's too much at stake, your children and your grandchildren and the folks that you relate to. That lying habit you have, that lust habit that you have, that gossiping tongue that you have, you're going to pay more dividends than you care to admit. And I'm here to tell you as a pastor, it is my responsibility. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the big problems that we have in our churches today is that we're soft on sin. I don't mean to be hard on people. We should be gracious with one another, but we should be hard on sin. It is no joke. It is no laughing matter. Take care of the sin in your own soul. The second thing that I would say is that don't worship your children. Don't worship your children. Somebody asked me, can I love my children too much? No, you can't love your kids too much. But don't spell love, as I said before, W-O-R-S-H-I-P. Don't worship your children. Don't let them control your decisions. Don't let them control what is righteous. Don't let them control how you think. And sometimes, quote, in the name of love, we give them a pass. We don't discipline them for stuff that they've done wrong. We let them go. We let these habit patterns develop. Why? Because we really worship them. They control us. The third thing that I would say is this. 
Don't compare your kids with each other. I said that before. Before God, try, and not only in your words, but in your actions too. Be very careful of that. It's very, very subtle. And, you know, we've got four kids. I've got, I've got, um, I've got a son that is so much like me, and I've had to watch that growing up. I've had to watch it as we've raised our kids. It is so easy to go over that line. But don't compare your kids with one another. The fourth thing that I would say is this. Don't advocate, advocate, for, advocate for your kids beyond the boundaries of what is right. Mom and dad should never be viewed as those who will get me off the hook if I got into trouble. Mom and dad should never be those who are viewed who will hide me from what the stuff that I've done. They ought to know that you love God so much and ultimately you love them so much that you will never cover for wrong. You'll always advocate for that which is right. And the final one is this. And I guess I've said it. I suppose I'm sounding harsh, but I don't mean to. Let your children feel the consequences of lies and deceit. Let them feel it. Lying is a very bad thing. It is a very bad thing. Deceit is a very, very, very bad thing. Let them feel the consequences of it. And call a lie what it is. Call it what it is. No, you lied. You said you're going to be over here, but you were over there. Don't, don't give me the emotional reasons why you didn't do what you did. You, let's, let's start with the sin. You lied. You see, there's hope there because you can overcome the sin. But you start affirming them in their little alibis and little concessions and little stuff. Before you know it, you've contributed to someone who just, you, you've raped them of integrity. It's a big deal. I'm going to have us stand together. Here's where our hope comes in. The power to do all of this is found in the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't this where our hope is? The cleansing is found in the gospel. The power for me to overcome all of the sin, I can't do it myself. I can't, I can't take enough counseling courses that will give me the power to overcome my sin. I'm not down on counseling. I think it's wonderful, by the way, but I can't. There's, there's not enough self-help books in the world that will help me overcome my sin. But there is an empty tomb and a living Savior, and that power is available to all of us. And all we need to do is come and confess our sins to him and trust him as Savior and Lord, and he releases that power in and through us. Father, we thank you, God, for these warnings that are in the book. Oh, God, we pray that you'll help us to be people who are honest to the core, that you'll do a work in our hearts and minds. And Father, we thank you for our children, and we thank you, Father, for our siblings. But Lord, we pray that you'll help us, oh God, oh God, help us to not to fuel dysfunctional spiritual behavior. May you help us to be honoring folks, honest folks, transparent people, telling the truth not only by our words, but by our intentions and our actions as well. Dismiss us from this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.